Good morning. As I said, my name is Eric Simpson. I'm a part of the, um, the teaching team here at our church, and uh, just thrilled to be with you today and um, see what the Lord has to say to us in his word. Um, so to get us going, a, uh, a simple but pretty significant question for us to consider today. When you think about uh, Jesus, and you think about his time on this earth, you think about his, his ministry and how he interacted with people, what comes to mind for you? How do you picture Jesus interacting with people in the scripture? You know, one of the reasons why I just really love John's account of Jesus' life that we find in his gospel is that I just find it so helpful to really coming to know who this Jesus was and and is. And I think, you know, we've covered John 1 a couple times. I'm just going to hit it again briefly this morning as we get started because I think he just opens his gospel with such an awesome description of who Jesus is. And in verses 14 to 17, John says this. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so this Jesus that we meet in the gospel of John, right? This is God in the flesh. And he's with us in the trenches, in the muck and the mire of our lives. And he meets us with, he's just full of grace and full of truth. And he is just heaping grace upon grace, double helpings of grace on us. Can I interest anybody in a double helping of grace, right? And this is the Jesus that we meet and so, so how do we begin to just make this not just merely words on pages that we're reading, but how do we get to start to experience this Jesus firsthand? Well, our passage today, we are in John 4. And as Laura introduced us, it's, it's the account of Jesus' interaction with this woman of Samaria, or maybe you've heard this passage term, the woman at the well. And this encounter is just one of my favorite uh, that we see as far as how Jesus interacts with people because I think it just so clearly illustrates these things about who Jesus is and what he's offering us in a real relationship with him. And so the red letter promise that we meet in this passage is that if we come and we drink of what Jesus has to offer us, that our dry souls will be satisfied. And so we're just basically going to, to read through this passage and stop and talk a little bit along the way. And, and my ask of you this morning is that you would be an active participant in the reading of this passage, that you would, you would enter in, that you would put yourself in the position of this woman that Jesus meets at the well. So the words are going to be on the screen, or if you have your own Bible or device, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says that now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds in parentheses for us, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
And so, you know, I think the opening words of this passage really give us some, some very important context into this interaction that we're about to see between Jesus and this woman. As we just saw, John makes a point to note that Jews and Samaritans had no dealings. Like, why would he do that? Why would he put that little statement in parentheses in this passage? Well, for sure, the Jews and the Samaritans have a long history of not getting along, to put it mildly. And if that's something new and you're not quite familiar with why that is, I thought it would be helpful to read uh, from D.A. Carson as he tries to describe for us why it is there's this tense relationship between these two people groups. And he says it like this. He says, after the Assyrians captured Samaria, so the Assyrians were a world power at the time, right? And they, they conquered not just Israel, they conquered like everybody, right? But after they came in and they captured Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. And then after the exile was over, so after the Jews then are brought back to their, to their homeland, the Jews viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. And then, this will be significant later in our story, in about 400 B.C., the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So a temple to rival the one that was in Jerusalem. And John, pa- I'm sorry, John Piper goes on to say that it was, it was ethnic, racial, and religious issues here that made the Jews feel disdain for the Samaritans. They were ceremonially unclean, they were racially impure, they were religiously heretical, and therefore they were to be avoided. But our text says that Jesus had to or needed to go through Samaria. So what does that mean? Was that the only route? He was going from from the south, from Judea, headed to the north area of Galilee? Was that the only route that Jesus could have taken? Is that why he had to go that way? Well, no, in fact, as hopefully you can make out this map a little bit, The blue line illustrates in the middle, that is the most direct route from Judea up into Galilee, directly through the heart of Samaria. But because of their disdain for the Samaritans, and you can probably use a stronger word there if you were so inclined, it was not uncommon for Jews of that day to travel to the west or to the east to completely avoid the region. So to the west, and they'd travel up the coast, and then they would bypass Samaria, then they would head north to where they were going. Or they would head to the east and they would, they would cross the River Jordan, head north, cross the river again, all to bypass this people group. Now think about that for a minute, right? This is not like taking the scenic route in the comfort of your car, a 15-minute detour to like the mountain overlook, right, with the air conditioning going, right? This is, they traveled on foot back then. So this is physically going out of your way, crossing rivers, uh, you know, hiding from wild animals. I don't know what was out there back then. Sleeping outside at night, right? This is not a small task to go this far out of your way just to avoid a specific people group. So this wasn't the only way that Jesus could have gone. He could have, it was common practice. He could have gone to the west or to the east and gotten to the northern regions a different route. And for what we can tell in the scripture, he didn't have to because somebody was physically forcing him this way. Right? So what does it mean when the text says that he had to go this way? Well, could it be that just maybe Jesus, filled with the Spirit, felt led to go this way because the Father had somebody along the way that he intended for him to meet? 
And so Jesus meets this woman, and she asks, why do you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answers her, and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and not have to come here to draw water. And so this imagery that Jesus is using with this lady about thirst and water, it's not isolated just to this one passage in John 4. Right? Like we see this, this kind of theme on repeat throughout Scripture. So I thought it would be helpful to just cover a handful of those verses so we can start to try to understand what exactly is this living water that Jesus is offering to this lady. You know, we see in Jeremiah 2 that God calls himself the fountain of living water. In Psalm 42, in one of the parts where David's just crying out to God, he says this. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And a couple pages later in John in chapter 7, Jesus is at a big party, right? He's at a big, he's at a big feast. And it says that on, on the great day of the feast, which is probably when there's going to be the most amount of people there, right? On this great day that Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come at me to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then Jesus tells us exactly what he's talking about here. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive. And that at the end of this book in Revelation in chapter 22, we see, we see two passages that, that paint this picture for us of, of what, when, when all things are consummated, what this living water will look like. And in verse 1 it says that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then 22.17 says, the bride and the spirit say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so the Old Testament into the Gospels and Revelation, we see this imagery of thirst and water. And I think what the scriptures are telling us is that it is God himself, his presence in us and our relationship with him that are the only things that can satisfy what our soul is thirsty for. Only God himself can satisfy and quench the spiritual thirst that we have. And as believers, we, this for us is God's spirit in us. That's his presence in us. And so we know from scripture, the spirit does many things, right? Like it works in us. It brings about our, our sanctification. We get the fruit of the spirit as we walk with Christ. And, and when Jesus says that it's, it's going to well up into eternal life, what does he mean by that? If we remember back to Ephesians in the fall, Ephesians 1 says this, in him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so I think if we kind of combine all of these things and try to, try to make it in a, in a phrase that we can dig our teeth into and walk away with, I think the offer of the living water to this woman and to us 
is God himself, his presence in us, the Holy Spirit, which brings us fullness of life now and into eternity. And so Jesus is offering the solution to the spiritual thirst that this woman has, to give her what it is that she needs the most. But at least for the time being, she's so focused on her physical thirst and not having to physically come to the well every day that she doesn't quite yet see what's right in front of her. But the Savior keeps pursuing her anyways. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus says to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so we began to start to see a little bit into the circumstances of this woman's life and, and maybe some, some insight into why it is she's craving this physical water so much. Now remember, Jesus is with her at about noon, right? Like right in the middle of the day. And in those times, getting water from the well was this continual process, right? I don't know if it was a, a daily thing or a twice a week thing. I'm not sure how often you had to go to the well, but you had to keep going to the well, right? There was no going and, and turning on the faucet and getting shackly filtered water right into your cup back then. Like that didn't, that didn't exist, right? No indoor plumbing. So for, for cooking, for, for bathing, for cleaning, you needed, you needed jars of water in your house. And the only way to get water into those jars was to go to the well, and when people did this, history tells us that they would normally go in, in groups of people. This was kind of like a social outing. You've got to carry your big jars. You might as well do it with some friends, right? And this dynamic actually still exists today in areas of the world where water isn't as free as we have it here. I've seen this dynamic in, in Haiti when we've seen groups of, of women carrying laundry together in groups down to the river to do their laundry because they don't have washing machines in their house. So there's this social group dynamic that comes with doing some of these daily activities. But this woman is by herself getting the water. And so for sure, we don't know the specifics of these six relationships that she's had, right? Like the Bible doesn't give us the insight into exactly what happened with her five husbands. But I, I don't think it's a stretch, and I don't think we have to try too hard to imagine the kind of pain or regret or shame that she's walking in because of her past relationships, five husbands and a current one that's just outside the boundaries of God's good design. Like, I don't think we have to try hard to imagine and to put ourselves in her place that if this was us, it's so easy to feel that she would just have this huge void in her soul and that that void and her past and what she walked through in probably what is a small town where people knew all too much about what she had walked through makes her not want to be around those people but rather go about her day-to-day -day tasks alone. And so like I said at the start, I, I want us to enter into this story together this morning. So, so try for a minute to really put yourself in the place of this woman, to, to feel the heaviness that must be weighing on her because of her past relationships. And men specifically, I don't want you to check out here mentally because this is a story about a woman, right? This is about Jesus' interaction with all of us. So don't check out on me here. So if you're, a, if you're having a bit of a hard time entering in, let's do it like this real quick. I mean, we're, we're in church, right? We're a bunch of church folk here. So I'm sure we've all had these just perfect relationships. We have no pain, no shame that's gone along with any of our past relationships. I mean, as Christians, we, we have one relationship, one perfect relationship that then ends in marriage, right? That's what Christians do. Well, if, if that's your story, praise God, hallelujah. I don't want to take that away from you for a second. That is a, a beautiful thing. 
But I would bet that for many of us here or watching today, myself included, that we've experienced at least in part what this woman is experiencing at the end of one of our broken relationships. Shame, regret, maybe just a longing for the pain to go away, for something else to step in into that void that's been left. And maybe it's not a relationship for you, but, but it's got to be something else. Do you know how I know it's got to be something else? Because we live in a fallen world and we're all sinful. And all of us get wounded either by our own actions or by the actions of others in this life. So really think about what is that for you? Like what is the pain point in your past? And let the weight of that sink in a little bit this morning. Now picture yourself in front of Jesus and he just has completely outed this to you, right to your face. Like she's asking him for the living water that he is offering her. And he responds by bringing up probably the most painful part of her life. Sir, this water sounds good. Give it to me. Okay, go, go call your husband first. Then come back. She doesn't need her husband to take a drink of water. So why does Jesus respond this way? Like, what is he up to? Did he, did he have to go through Samaria to stop at this well, to pull out her pain and judge and condemn her? Is that why he had to go through Samaria? No, no. John three seventeen, like literally right next to this passage in, in my Bible, maybe in yours too, possibly one of the most overshadowed verses in Scripture, right? John three seventeen says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then we know in Luke 5 that Jesus says about himself that he didn't come into this world for the healthy because the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. He didn't come into this world for people who think that they're, that they're so clean that they don't need somebody to help them. He came into this world to call sinners to repentance. He came to love and give grace and mercy, not condemnation and judgment. So why is he bringing up this woman's past? Why bring up this most painful part of her when all she wants is a drink of water. Well, last week, if you remember, uh, we looked at Jesus being um, the light, and, and Julian asked us to think about the darkest place we've ever been. Well, I want us to do the same exercise this morning. I'm just going to straight steal his idea. I don't think he's going to be too mad at me for doing it. I got the salute, so that's good. So let's think about this morning, what's the thirstiest you've ever been? Or maybe think about it this way, when does water taste its best? Like for me, I think about middle of August, hot, humid, cutting the grass, doing yard work for a couple hours, right? And then coming into this tall, ice-cold glass of water. Like for me, that's the best glass of water that I'm ever going to have. But when does water taste its best? It's when we're at our driest. It's when we're weary and tired and exhausted, and it just quenches our thirst. Well, this physical dynamic is true spiritually as well. In order to see and savor the beauty of what Jesus has to offer us, we must first realize how thirsty spiritually we are. And we must understand where that spiritual thirst is coming from. What's the root cause of that inside of us? Because if we don't think we have anything wrong, if we don't think we're thirsty at all, then what possible reason could we have for wanting living water? What possible reason could, could we need a Savior if we don't feel thirsty? So she's asking him for a, for a solution to her, her physical thirst, which, which she thinks will, will, in fact, take away her shame that she's feeling. Because if she's never thirsty again, if she never has to physically come to this well again, then she can avoid the public shame that probably is causing for her to be at this well by herself. 
But Jesus knows at the same time that this isn't the ultimate solution that she needs, that there's something else beneath the surface that needs to be dealt with first before he, she can be led into life. And so he, he leans into her pain, not to judge her, but in an act of kindness and mercy to reveal to her that she needs so much more than just a physical drink. And so let's see how our Samaritan sister responds. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will be able to tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus presses into her wound. And and what is her response? She deflects by changing the topic. Sir, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So, so while you're in prophecy mode, let's, let's leave this five husband thing on the side. I have a real spiritual question for you. Like, you, you Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. We say it's on this mountain over here. Let's forget about that for a minute. Let's focus on, can you just answer this one question for me? Have you ever had that kind of interaction with Jesus or with others? Like, you're convicted of something in your time reading the word. And, and so when you, when you meet those moments, do you sit there and, and marinate in that for a little bit and, and let God, through his spirit, nudge on your soul and work around and needle in on your heart to figure out what's going on in there? Or, or do, you, do you close the book and get on with your day? Or, or in life group, if the conversation is just getting a little bit too close to that pain point in, in your life, when, when it's your time to, to share out and to ask for prayer, do you lean in and do you ask people to help you and pray for you in this area? Or do you offer a, a prayer request for somebody else? You see, her, her move is this kind, of, this kind of classic misdirection away from the main topic at hand that, that I think we all do at, at, some, at some level. You know, I was, uh, I was introduced to this, this term um, this week. Um, it's new to me. It's called the Jesus Juke. I don't know if you guys have heard this term. It's uh, compliments of, of Brother James Wilson. I don't know if it's just a Wilson family thing or if everybody knows about the Jesus Juke. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. Right? She wants to change the, the topic, and what he does is just so Jesus. He both answers her question and presses all the more into the real answer that she needs. He pivots the conversation from what she's trying to, to, to confuse him with, and he goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, yes, salvation is from the Jews, but, but more important than where you worship is whom and how you worship. And God the Father wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so here's the trap I think that we can maybe get stuck in that prevents us from, from fully worshiping in spirit and in truth. Like I think that even though we would most likely all profess with our, with our mouths that grace is a free gift and we can't earn it, right? Nothing we can do to, to earn God's grace. Don't we at some level still feel like we have to do this or we have to do that. We have to check this box or, or that box or, or if God or others knew this or that about me, I just, I just wouldn't be loved in the same way. They, they wouldn't accept me in the same way. I think that's a lie that keeps us from experiencing fully the living water that God has for us. Like if there's part of us that we're not giving to God, then he doesn't have our full worship 
And that's what he wants. That's what he's after. And so here's one of the most stunning things about this interaction with Jesus and this woman that I just want, this is what I want to sink into our souls today. God doesn't wait until this woman has cleaned herself up or fixed her relationship issues to pursue her. Instead, he sends Jesus full of the Spirit directly into an area filled with people that Jesus' own people don't want nothing to do with so that he can meet this woman and just dump buckets of grace over her head. Why? Because the Father is seeking her worship, her full, undivided, rid of shame, whole, complete worship with everything she has. And so Jesus gets into her life and, and he points out what it is that's preventing her from receiving his love. He, he meets her where she is, in the trenches, in the pain, in the brokenness of her life. God puts on flesh. He sits down physically next to her and full of grace and truth, he shines the light right where she needs it the most so that she can worship God. And this is what he wants for you. This is what he wants for me. Not worship from only the parts of us that we feel are clean enough for him and others to see. He wants, he wants all of us, even the parts that we want to hide from others, because it's sometimes in those parts that he will do his best work. So I think um, God's been giving me some very humbling insight this year into my version of, of changing the subject like this woman did. I've come to find out this year that he's, I guess I kind of knew this intuitively, but he, he's wired me as an achiever, which means that I want to accomplish things, and then I want to be recognized for those accomplishments. I know to some of you that probably sounds really dumb and narcissistic, right? But I would argue that's just because he's wired you differently. But, but what he's shown me in, in this past year and, and where he's been, he's been pressing into me, especially through the reading of this text so much this week, is that my default, when he points out an area that needs work, my default in the flesh is to slap his hand away from that and point to this list of accomplishments over here. You don't need to be worried about this, God, because look at all these things that are going right that I'm nailing, right? And so, so here's how this works its way out as an example in, in my life, like as a dad primarily, right? Many areas, but just wanted to illustrate it this morning. I know this is probably shocking to you, but if, if you, when I lose my temper with my kids sometimes and I, I tend to go too far with my words and God says, hey, come on, man. That's not what I'm calling you to as a father. He's five and you're 37. What is going on here? Like something else is happening in your heart right here that's causing you to act like that. Not his behavior. His behavior is wrong, but you're the man, you're the father. Don't talk to him that way. And what I want to do, slap his hand away. I played with him for three hours at the park today and he's completely ungrateful. I read the Bible to him four nights in a row, right? I want to look to those list of things and change the subject away from where God really wants to work in my heart. So why do we do that? Why do I do that? Why do we not want to deal with what it is that God is showing us? Why do we change the subject? Well, I think there's probably many reasons, right? But at some level, I think we're all worried that if we sit in that too long, if we bring that thing up to others, if we bring that thing up to God, that we're going to be met with condemnation. And that's the stuff of darkness, man. What awaits us in the light is compassion and grace and mercy, not condemnation. The last song we're going to sing today has these words in it. It's kind of a spoiler alert, but that's okay. It says that, I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws, Lord. You've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. There's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. 
Like, how true are those words? And I think just as, as scared as we may be with what awaits us on the other side of trying to, to shine light on those areas, what actually awaits us, just like this woman found face-to-face with her Messiah, is compassion. That's what we're going to find from him. That's what we're going to find from the people of God. And so I think if we really want this living water and get to experience it fully, we need to start getting below the surface in our lives. We need to stop deflecting and changing the subject and slapping God's hand away we feel him or others getting too close. Because Jesus wants to heal so that we can experience this living water of God's presence. So that that would then overflow out of us into worship of the Father fully in spirit and in truth. And if that wasn't enough for us this morning, like if that, I, I almost just ended right there. If that wasn't awesome enough, we see also out of this overflow comes back to what John says in chapter 1. We see grace upon grace. When we pick up the story, it says this. Just then Jesus came, Jesus' disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. In verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him, Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of you, of what you have said, that we believe. For we have heard of ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so I think this is at least in part of what Jesus is getting at in John 7 when he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This woman who went about her day avoiding people goes straight back into the town full of people she's been trying to avoid to tell them about her encounter with Jesus, to tell them her story. That this new, this new living water inside of her now begins to overflow out of her life into the lives of others. And they get to meet and experience Christ for themselves. This is grace upon grace. This is a double helping of, of grace. Not only will Jesus enter in and heal us and fix our wounds, but then he can use our story to bring other people to the well so they can drink for themselves. Wow. This is such a good reminder for us that if we ever find ourselves wondering, are we good enough to be used by God? Like, does he know about this over here? If he knew about this, he would never use me. The answer is, no, you're not good enough. I am not good enough. None of us are good enough. That's the point of the cross. We're not good enough, but he uses us anyways. He he uses your story to bring others to life. And he offers us living water, which is God himself, his spirit in us, the only thing that, complete, that can completely satisfy our souls. Like, we all have things that are preventing us from fully experiencing this living water. This is life in a fallen world. There's going to be things that God uncovers all the time in our souls. Maybe they're old, maybe it's an old pain point, or maybe it's as fresh as this morning. But we all have it. So what is that for you? Again, this is not an exercise in, in shame, but an exercise in trying to realize just how thirsty we are. 
So what is it for you? And when you feel God and others getting, getting close to that thing, do you let him in to do his work or do you slap his hand away and change the subject? If we want this living water, it's time for us to be real with God and real with others because, again, he already knows and he wants you anyways. He's pursuing you anyways. He sent Jesus to the cross for you to die for whatever that is. Anyways, he's seeking your worship. The Father is seeking you to worship him in spirit and in truth, and he wants to flow through you like a river. And so the red letter promise is that if we let him in to do his work, we get living water. The fullness of life now brought about by the Holy Spirit welling up into eternal life. Would you let him in today to start to do his work in your heart? Let's ask him for his help.